the rose of a peach orchard. You're walking alongside a peach farmer as he's taking you up and down these rows of delectable fruit. It's a warm late June day in 1863 in Pennsylvania. Smell the fragrance of the peach blossoms. See the delicious peaches that are growing on the trees. Imagine the harvest that will come whenever the fruit ripens. And as you're walking alongside this farmer, he's full of hope. And yet the problem is that this peach orchard is near Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And within a week of this day that you're walking alongside this farmer, that orchard will be the site of one of the worst battles in all of history. Those peach blossoms will be ripped to shreds by bullets and artillery fire. The sweet-smelling fragrance of peaches will give way to the musty smell of gunpowder and sweat and even death. And the peaceful serenity that these rows of trees provide will be undone by the agonizing screams of men dying. How could such a fruitful garden, brimming with life, become a ferocious battlefield littered with carnage and death? That's the image that I have in mind as I think about God's design for marriage and the sad state of marriage in our culture today. What was intended to be a garden brimming with life has become a battlefield with carnage and destruction left behind. Something that was designed by God to be one thing has tragically been hijacked and broken, resulting in marriage being relegated to something far, far inferior. And so I've been praying for you this week and Thinking about the sermon series that we're jumping into, Marriage in High Regard, and just recognizing that this sermon series will collide with each of us in different ways. Some of you are single and you're longing for marriage. Some of you are single and you're content to never marry. Some of you are single and you're close to being married. And some of you are married and you're newly married. You're in love. You don't have a clue how I could even talk about marriage being a battlefield. Some of you have been married for decades, having gone through more valleys than peaks, and yet, by God's grace, you love one another more today than you did when you began. Others find themselves in marriages, and they're encouraged, and they're growing by the grace of God. And some of you are married And your heart aches with disappointment. You've been betrayed. It's left you brokenhearted. And you find yourself living in a trap of fear. Maybe you're here this morning and you're married and you just don't know how much longer you can hold on and hang in there. 
And my prayer this week has just been, God, would you allow each person who hears this, would they find encouragement from your word to see things the way that you see them, oh God? To allow our perspective to be raised up and to not settle for something far inferior than what it is that God has designed in the institution of marriage. Oh, that the world would be confronted with truths about our good God by looking at our marriages. And on a personal note, I'm uniquely burdened for the marriages of our church. More people today are seeking out counseling for struggles around marriage. And, and while I recognize that is owing to God's grace, and I'm so thankful for a willingness to come and to seek help, I'm also burdened. Burdened at the number of marriages that, are, have, that have considered or that are seriously considering walking out on marriage. And while my own marriage is nowhere close to that, owing to the grace of God, I sadly know all too well the tendency to simply settle in my marriage. Well, things aren't hemorrhaging. And so I don't lean into God's good design. I lose sight of the way that Christ has served me. And I begin to be selfish and don't consider how then I should serve my wife. There are days where I forget the ways in which Christ has pursued me. And I then become lazy in the ways in which I pursue my wife. There are days where I expect and wait for church-like submission. Not willing to go first in Christ-like service. And it becomes very evident in these moments that I am settling for something far less than what God intended. And so how might God's word instruct each of us this morning, every one of us, to hold marriage in high regard? That's our aim over the next three weeks. We'll begin this morning with God's primary purpose for marriage. Next week, we'll consider what God has given to us to navigate the challenges of marriage. And then lastly, we'll, after two weeks of looking at this glorious institution of marriage, we'll be reminded that God purposefully designed marriage not to be ultimate. And so as great as it is, it's not ultimate. He's ultimate. And so what's that mean for those of us that are not married? And so that's where we're going over the next three weeks. This morning, we will spend our time thinking about the purpose of marriage. I'm reminded of the quote, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work. Rather, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And so as I've thought about how we began this series and thinking about God's purpose, his primary purpose, there are several purposes that we see throughout Scripture for marriage, but what's his primary purpose? And as we think about the primary purpose of marriage, 
What I hope to do today is not merely say, let's look at this job description and this job description, and now let's get to work. What I hope to do is allow the Word of God to uphold the beauty of this relationship. Much like the quote that would help us then long for the glorious reality of marriage. And so I invite you to turn into... Uh, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. The letter of Ephesians is dominated by the theme of unity. Specifically, how God is going to unite all things to himself in and through Christ. That's been the plan before the foundations of the world were laid, chapter 1. And of particular interest is how he will, how he will unite a sinful people to himself. He will give of his son to die on the cross for their sins. He will raise from the dead. And for all who repent and believe, they will be united back to God. That's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But not only would they be united back to God, they will also be reconciled and united one to another. That's Ephesians 2 through the rest of the chapter. The glorious reality is those people who have been reconciled to God and reconciled to one another, they then are what we have, they come to be known as the church, the people of God. That's chapter three. And then beginning in chapter four, Paul begins to address the way we respond to such a gracious and loving Christ. What does it look like for us to live unified to this God and to his people and to his world in light of what he has done for us? Ephesians chapter 4 begins, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so what Paul is laboring is to say, in light of everything that has been done to unite you to Christ and to unite you with others, in light of that, you give your life. That's the only adequate response. It literally touches everything about you. Chapter 4 will continue. He's given gifts to people to help them live out this calling. He's also given gifts to the church to help equip the people to live out that calling. Then you get to Ephesians 4.17, and it's just general instructions. Lay aside these behaviors. Put on these behaviors. Be imitators of me and imitators of Christ. And then you get to Ephesians 5, verse 22, and Paul begins to say, this is what all of that looks like applied to certain relationships. And he begins with the most basic relationship, the, the fundamental building block in, all of, in every society of all times. The relationship within the family, beginning with husband and wife. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 30, we'll spell that out. And I think our passage this morning, coming on the heels of that, is a, is a really tight and tidy summary of everything that I have just said. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 33, serves as a summary for this section on marriage. And so those tidy little three points will be the three points of the sermon. First point, 
the foundation of marriage. The foundation of marriage. We see that in verse 31. And before I read, I just want to help you as you're listening this morning. Just be thinking, how, how do my beliefs, how do my behaviors, how do my beliefs about marriage, how do my behaviors within marriage align to God's purposes for marriage? So how do my beliefs and how do my behaviors inform and align with what God's word says? And at the end of the day, where those are off, I pray that we would be marked with humility to walk in repentance. That's the invitation this morning. So the foundation of marriage, verse 31, this is what we read. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so as Paul is bringing this section on marriage to a close, he summarizes this section. And he doesn't merely say, hey, remember everything that I've told you in the previous several verses. No, as he's bringing this section to a close, Paul says, hey, remember how God designed it from the very beginning. Like if we're going to understand how we ought to have marriages that really do honor the one who has instituted and given the institution of marriage, then we have to go back to where it was designed. And that's what Paul does. He takes us back to Genesis chapter 2. And as we go back to Genesis chapter 2, this is what we remember. From the very beginning of creation, God had a wedding in mind. He had a marriage in mind. And then we think about Revelation chapter 21. And what do we see? We see a wedding. And we see a marriage in mind. And then we think about what sits at the center of all of human and redemptive history. It's the work of Jesus Christ doing what? Wedding himself. Wooing and accomplishing and securing a bride for himself. And so as we think about marriages, we go back to Genesis and we say, wait, the Bible began with a marriage. It ends, Revelation 21, in a marriage. And at the center, there's a marriage. And what God intends to do with this marriage relationship is simply staggering. And before he gets into the purpose of marriage, here in verse 31, he unpacks and appeals to the foundation of marriage. And how does he do that? He quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And when we go back to Genesis chapter 2, we're reminded, okay, okay, marriage is, a, marriage is all God's idea. Marriage is a part of God's creative design. Marriage was created before sin entered into the world, before evil and death were a part of the human experience. And so now anything that comes after, marriage, or after sin and death has entered into the human experience, that doesn't change the design for marriage. It just makes it that much more difficult to uphold. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God declares for the first time that something is not good. All of Genesis 1 is this refrain after his creation, and it was good. It was good. 
It was good, it was good, it was good. Genesis chapter two, verse 18, for the first time, God says, something is not good. What is not good? It's not good for man to be alone. There was no helper that was suitable for Adam. And so let's be clear, Adam was alone in his endeavor to uphold the commands that God had given him. What commands did God give Adam at the beginning? To be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with people that were reflecting, uh, that were reflectors of God's image. And so fill the earth with people that are like you. How was Adam like? He was a worshiper. And so let's fill the earth with worshipers. Well, Adam was alone in that. He couldn't fill the earth by himself. I just think it's, it's helpful to point out Adam was not lonely. God has not designed marriage to cure loneliness. In fact, some of the most lonely people that I know are those that are married. No, marriage was meant to address being alone. And this union, this coming together, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This union culminates in one flesh. And that makes sense because how was man created? Man was created in the image of God. What do we know about the God who we image? He is a triune God. He is three in one. And this relationship from the very beginning was intended to put on display the unity and yet the diversity that exists between man and woman in this relationship. Two individuals coming together to build a life with one story, with one purpose, one reputation, one bed, one budget, one family. And so God creates a helper fit for Adam. And perhaps you think God creates a helper fit for Adam. And you just sort of your hope and your anticipation for this glorious design just sort of womp womp. It's the flower that just boom. Perhaps you, you hear that and you think, okay, so the woman was just a helper. So Adam is better than Eve because Eve was just a helper. I just want you to know that is a very Western way to think. That's not a biblical way to think. It's not your Bible, it's your culture that equates value with role. Your Bible upholds equal value, different roles. And your Bible upholds that because your God embodies that. It's possible to have distinct roles and differences and yet be of equal worth. And so when we hear that God formed and created a helper fit for him, suitable for him. That's not something on the worth of Eve. It's something on the good, glorious design of God, giving distinction so that a purpose can be accomplished. And in fact, if we were to go through the Old Testament, the word that's used there, a helper fit for him, helper that's most often used throughout the Old Testament in reference to God himself, who would be a help for his people in times of trouble. 
And then you get to the New Testament, and the word most often refers to the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. Biblically speaking, a helper provides you with what you lack on your own. And so God in great mercy and in good design creates Eve equal in worth, fit for him, different than him. And these two humans of complementary yet different genders, complementary yet different roles, they leave their families and they join together to create a new family. This is the foundation for marriage. This is God's design for marriage. So some people say, no, 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 I think the foundation for marriage is love. While love is essential for marriage, love is not the foundation for marriage because love doesn't create marriage. God does. And, and I'm so thankful that Paul starts, the, again, this summary section. How is it that he's going to put the bow on the relationships of marriage and what that marriage is intended to do to display the glory of God? I'm so thankful that he starts here. Because if you and I miss the foundation of marriage, then things begin to unravel. For example, cultural norms and not God's design begin to shape how you view and think about your marriage. In their book, The Meaning of Marriage, which we would commend, Tim and Kathy Keller trace this cultural shift in the West of how marriage is viewed. Listen to what the Kellers say. Instead of finding meaning through self-denial, giving up one's freedom, and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage has been redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. So instead of viewing marriage, this is what the Kellers, Kellers are saying, instead of viewing marriage by how do I deny myself and how do I give myself in a commitment to this person? Instead, our culture has crept in, and now we begin to think of marriage, not how do we give of ourselves, but how does marriage then help me find emotional and sexual fulfillment? The Kellers go on. Marriage used to be a public institution for the common good. And now it's a private arrangement for the satisfaction of the individual. Marriage used to be about us, but now marriage is so often about me. And our culture hasn't merely made this thinking mainstream. They've actually made it heroic. Like if you will step out of God's design for marriage and the more you're willing to step out and the more you're willing to insist on self-actualizing what you want, then the more heroic you are. And that self-actualization and that self-expression in your marriage is ruining marriage. And I want to be clear, this doesn't mean that your marriage shouldn't be satisfying. It doesn't mean that your marriage shouldn't be fulfilling. But whenever satisfaction and fulfillment is the foundation of your marriage, you will crush your spouse. Your satisfaction is not the foundation for your marriage. And, and I realize I'm saying that to people who have very hard marriages 
And that doesn't mean that I want to sort of turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the difficulties that you're living in. But I want, to, I want to put something in front of you that's far more glorious than having your fulfillment and your satisfaction as the foundation for your marriage. Marriage is not primarily about romantic fulfillment. It's not about being completed by another. It's not about feeling in love. Marriage is God's design. And so if you're struggling this morning with marriage, here's where hope can be found. If you will commit to following his design and not the cultural winds of our culture, then you'll know hope. You'll find hope. That doesn't mean it's easy. But it does mean that God has so created Boundaries to hedge and to protect his people, that if they will live within those boundaries, there is always hope. Always. And if you say, I don't believe that, then your issue is not with me. Your issue is with the God of Romans 8.28. Marriage doesn't work merely because people are compatible. Or because people are right for one another. It works because God helps spouses image him. And as spouses begin to say, how how does the life and the actions of Christ towards me applied in my marriage towards another? How does that inform how I ought to respond? Whenever spouses consider the other more important than themselves, whenever spouses are willing to serve and not to demand to be served, whenever they realize that marriage is not primarily about what they can get out of this, but the joy that is found in giving to this, God's design and foundation in marriage, it begins here because marriage has a far more amazing purpose than even we realize. And we have to start here because if we don't start with the right foundation, we will not understand the purpose of marriage. And so when you think of your marriage, is this where you begin? Or maybe just when you think of marriage in general. When you think of your marriage, you think of the marriage of others around you the marriage that you long to be a part of one day, when you think of these things, is this where you begin? Do you begin at the foundation that God has put in place for this relationship? Are you convinced that this is a good foundation? Are you convinced that this is God's design? Are you convinced that God and not you gets to set the terms? I think we could... Almost all of us say, yeah, yeah, I'm convinced of that. Well, is it your functional foundation? I mean, is it driving day-to-day interactions and behaviors? It has to be. Church, this has to be our foundation. Because if we build the house of marriage on anything else, it will crumble. It will. It's just a matter of time. And so I plead with you this morning, church, build your marriages here.
Students, don't settle for anything but this foundation for marriage. Church members, don't settle as other people are walking and you hear them. Man, are they, are they building their house upon the foundation that God has given? And if they're not, it is a worthwhile fight to jump in and to plead with others. To commend God's design to others. It must be built here. Why? Because of the purpose of marriage. And that's the second point. Point number two, the purpose of marriage. And that's verse 32. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. It's interesting. Verse 31, Paul brings the therefore Therefore, this reason or for this reason. Paul brings the therefore that's found in Genesis 2 into Ephesians 5. Genesis 2, the therefore, there will be a, a, a husband and a wife and they will leave their families and be joined together. The therefore is connecting what's about to happen, the, the, the unity that's about to happen with the diversity. This husband and wife from two different families will diverse, they're different, and they will come together. But the therefore in chapter 5 is because of the gospel. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Well, what's the therefore, therefore? It's not just therefore because he's quoting something. But there's a, the there is because of what he's talking about in the previous verses. We are a part of his body. Because we have union with Christ, then our marriages look like this. This is what it means to have a distinctly, distinctively Christian marriage. We belong to him. And how he is with his bride is how we are to be with ours. And how his bride is to be with him is how I am to be as a bride to another. Christ has made a covenant with us and he promises never to leave us or forsake us. And this kind of love is the starting point. It's the starting point of marriage. And so as we think then the foundation of marriage, we see God has brought together two people to do something, to, to have them come together. Why? What's the purpose? Well, that's verse 32. This mystery is great. And that ushers in the question, well, what mystery? And Paul doesn't mean you need Sherlock Holmes to show up and kind of a, a detective with deductive skills and reasoning, trying to piece together clues. How do we make sense of this? No, mystery, which Paul will refer, he already addresses the mystery of the gospel, Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says this mystery is that which has been hidden, but now God is making it known through Christ. So there's been a purpose that's been at play all throughout the existence of this institution of marriage. And, and we've not really understood it. Like It seems that the whole thing has been special and unique because it's created by God and it's serving a purpose but without Ephesians 5, we would potentially get to the end of our days and just think marriage is all about this relationship, this earthly relationship between one husband, one wife. 
And Ephesians 5 says, no, 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 no. In fact, as this has been unfolding all throughout history, there has been a bigger purpose that this relationship is, has been intended to display. Marriage has always been about this. Well, what's the this? And it, it doesn't matter whether people have known it. Every marriage within any tribe, any nation, any language, any people group has been swept up into this mystery that began when it was established in Genesis chapter 2. What's the purpose? Marriage is meant to be the living drama of how Christ and his people, the church, relate to one another. That's the deepest, most fundamental purpose of marriage, which then just changes everything. Because if we think of marriage and we don't begin at the right foundation, and then we begin to think, well, I don't even, what's the purpose of my marriage? The purpose just to sort of somehow come together, uh, be able to make more money together than we did separate, to be able to have uh, a couple of kids, to be able to make sure we can just get all the kids to where they need to go. We get to the end of the day where we have not fallen apart. And, and, and it's easy to just slide into thinking that marriage really just culminates in this earthly relationship. That it just centers on this, the here and the now, her and him. But it's this purpose that earthly marriages point to and reflect something bigger that drives and informs everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we feel, and everything we believe about marriage. Pastor Ray Orland would say, every time a bride and groom stand at the altar and take their vows, they are reenacting the biblical love story whether they realize it or not. The Son of God stepping out of eternity, entering time, taking on flesh, pursuing and winning His bride as His very heart and body with His inmost and sincerest love so that He can fit her to be with Him forever above, that's the dramatic super-reality that's breathtaking. And that's why human marriages exist. John Piper would say, we cannot say too often that marriage is a model of Christ in the church. We can't say that too often because at the center of that relationship is grace. Christ pursues his bride by grace. He obtains her for his own grace. He sustains her by his grace. He will protect, uh, perfect her for himself by grace. And so Piper will conclude by saying marriage exists for the same reason that everything exists. It exists to magnify the truth and the worth and the beauty and the value and the greatness of God. Marriage exists to make God look good. Marriage exists to magnify God. I think most of us would agree with that. Yeah, I think that's why marriage exists. But is that the functional purpose that's driving your interactions in marriage day in and day out? Is that the functional purpose of why you're dating right now? Again, Paul isn't thinking about marriage and he's not saying, okay, uh, man, this relationship is phenomenal. Is there just an example that I can give that would 
help highlight how great this marriage is. Oh yeah, well, I think of Christ in the church. And, and No, it's not that way. In fact, God's word says Christ in the church was the substance, the shadow, and then uh, the substance in the shadow, the thing that's meant to sort of reflect and, and to, to highlight that is this relationship. That's why then uh, John Piper would say marriage is not mainly about staying in love or being in love. It's mainly about telling the truth with our lives. Marriage is a pointer toward the glory of Christ and the church. It's about portraying something true about Jesus and the way he relates to his people. And so I would ask you, is your marriage telling the truth about Jesus? I'm not asking, what do you think people think when you show up to a service once a week? I'm asking when no one else is looking, is your relationship being honest? Is it full of integrity? Is, is your, your behaviors, your practices, is that full of integrity about how Jesus is with his people? There's not a situation that you're facing right now. There's not a struggle in your marriage that isn't uh, directly connected to how Jesus has treated his people. And so think about whatever struggle you have in marriage. And don't first think, well, what do I need most? Or what do I want to do? What do I feel like doing? No, begin to go back to the foundation and the purpose. How did Christ respond? What did Christ say? What did Christ do? And marriages then are meant to put on display the completely confounding, otherworldly kind of love that Jesus has for his bride. Marriage is about showing in real life the glory of our good God. Every wife is intended to portray the church. A church that serves, a church that finds its life and its glory in Christ through her role of being a submissive helpmate. And every husband is to portray Christ, the Savior who at great cost to himself purchased his bride to love and who works at perfecting his church. See, you'll see, we must hold marriage in high regard. Not make marriage higher than it really is, but keep it as high as it really is. Why is this mystery so profound? Why is it so great? Why is this mystery loaded with significance? Because when it's done rightly, Jesus is exalted in marriage. When we align ourselves with what the word says for us as husbands and wives, we are sending a, a, sending a signal by the grace of God to everyone around us that Jesus alone reigns supreme. That Jesus alone is worthy. That Jesus alone has equipped us to be a people, not just who've experienced forgiveness when we fail, a, a grace because of failure, but also a grace to withstand and do the right thing because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
Christ has taken what is ruined in terms of relationships and he's redeemed it all to his glory. So what's the purpose that you're living for in your marriage? I mean, really, I think this is a good question for you to wrestle with. Like, what is the day-in, day-out motivation? What is it that informs your interactions with your spouse? What informs how you, how you apologize? What informs how you handle conflict? What informs how you see challenges and difficult days and hardships? Is it this purpose? Because if you're sitting at the center of that, then everything that's not easy to you will seem like an obstacle and you will, you will buck against potentially the good that God has brought in your life through challenges that are meant to stretch you, that are meant to give you opportunities to love another like you would never love anyone else if it was left up to you, but how you have been loved by your Savior. Is this purpose informing your dating? Is it informing your prayer life? Have you given up hope for this kind of marriage so much so that you're just willing to settle and not even aim for this purpose anymore? One pastor said, marriages that are lived for the glory of God are the fruit of churches that are permeated by the glory of God. When people see that the glory of God is their all-consuming and satisfying passion, marriages will change. They do change. They have changed. That brings us to the last point. The actions within marriage. Actions within marriage. And this is a summary Verse 33, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And so if you're confused, if, you're, if you've been confused thus far, it's like, all right, the foundation of marriage and the purpose of marriage, I don't know if I fully understand that. Just tell me what I can do to, to begin to work. What are the actions I should take? That's where I want to say, no, 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 don't start with actions. Go back and spend time, have conversations with people about the foundation and the purpose of marriage because that's the key that will unlock the reality of everything else that's going to happen. It will unlock the significance of why we act the way that we do, what it is that God has told us to do. When we're most satisfied in God and we're convinced that He is the founder and that He holds the purpose of marriage when we're most satisfied in Him, then He then, that is the source of us being able to be long-suffering. Of us being able to again and again and again deny ourselves. And again, this one verse provides a summary of what He's already covered in verses 18 through 31. But He does call husbands to act. And He calls wives to act as well. And this is what he says, husbands, love your wives. And then Paul, that's the summary of two paradigms that Paul has described in verses 25 through 30. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, Justin, what does that mean? How do I love my wife? 
verses 25 through 27, love your wife the way Christ loved his church. And then verses 28 and 29, love your wife the way you love yourself. So how ought husbands be loving? They're to be loving the way that Christ loved his church. Christ delighted to lay down his life for his bride. Husbands are to love like this. Husbands, this will be one of the hardest things that you will do. To give of yourself over and over for her good, both momentarily as well as eternally. Doing all that you can to sacrificially love. And so when you think of headship and leadership, if you don't think of sacrificial service, you're not thinking biblically about headship and leadership. It causes a husband to go low in service to his wife, doing all that he can to ensure not just that her comforts are met in this life, but to best prepare her for her eternity with her better bridegroom. Think about that, husbands. Since day one of your wedding, you ought to be preparing her for the better wedding. And Paul even says that in verses 25 through 28. Give yourself. And one of the ways you give yourself, wash her in the word. Labor for her holiness. Are you this kind of husband to your wife? And if you're not, I'm calling you to walk in repentance this morning. Lament over the ways in which your sin has kept you from being a Christ-like husband. Confess your sins. Turn from your sins and be restored. And some of you may need to have conversations with your spouse before you come to this table even this morning. Husbands. Love your wives. Be like Christ to your wife. And you're like, I just, that's just so, I still don't know if I can. You are hardwired to be the most selfish person because you're always looking out for you. So just love her the way you love yourself. Like when you're hungry, what do you do? When you have pain, what do you do? 1 Peter 3, begin then to live with your wife in an understanding way. Seeking to do her spiritual good, protecting her, providing for her. But he also says, wives, respect your husbands. This respect really is summed up in verses 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. By submitting to your husband's God-given role in your marriage, you are submitting as to the Lord. This does not say that your husband is your Christ. He makes for a terrible Christ. This is not to say that you should submit to him if he calls you and asks you to do things that would be contrary to honoring God. No. But there is a God-given role, a way in which wives respect their husbands by submitting to their leadership. 
Because the moment you say, I do, in God's eyes, your husband is your head. That's what he says in verse 23. And as the church submits to her head, Christ, so too wives submit to yours, your husbands. And I get this, wives. This can feel outdated and archaic. And let's just be clear. This also has been abused in ungodly ways. And if there are marriages here, wives, if there are husbands here that are being abusive in the ways in which they are sort of baptizing and whitewashing their sinful leadership with headship, please talk to your elders. It is not okay for husbands to abuse a precious gift like headship. And yet I'm also mindful that there's not a person in this room who their leadership and headship is worthy of a wife's submission all the time. And that's why you don't do it because of him. You do it as unto the Lord. This isn't based on traditional values or this cultural construct. Yeah, we're in the deep south. No, this is rooted in creation and redemption. And wives, just to be clear, there's nothing demeaning about Paul's exhortation to you. Because Philippians chapter 2 will remind you that this is really what Jesus did. Philippians chapter 2, 3 through 7. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so Christ is your power. Christ is your example. And he's your advocate. Well, I wonder if you are convinced of God's good purpose. I wonder if you can say, yep, that foundation and that purpose and those actions... I believe that they should mark my marriage. This is what I know. I know because I prepared it this week. A sermon like this has potential to leave people crushed. To hold up a standard and think I'm never going to be there and I just feel like a complete failure. I don't want this sermon to crush. I want it to convict, to challenge, to encourage, to mend. But if you find yourself feeling like you keep falling woefully short of God's good design, that's the intent of the design. It's to show you that you can't do this in and of yourself. And so let the law of Christ drive you to the balm of the gospel of Christ. Friends, we need to believe the gospel. We need to apply the gospel. And so before this sermon is really about anything you must do, this sermon ought to be grounded in this is what you must first receive. You must first receive in order to do. Our identity is not foremost in the success and the failure of our marriages. It's not even in our status as to whether or not we're married or not. Our identity is found in what we do as it relates to the ultimate wedding that all earthly weddings are pointing us to. After sin enters into the world, the Bible continually looks forward to this wedding about this patient and loving and persistent bridegroom whose love is not conditional. And that's what we find in Jesus. And that's why God the Father sent his beloved son to make right what Adam had lost to be a faithful bridegroom to his bride. 
And in the face of our self-centeredness, in the face of our rejection, in the face of we must have it our way, Jesus came as a full expression of God's favor and love. He came to reveal the the good of self-giving that we so often and easily forget. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he was nailed to a Roman cross. That last full measure of devotion, he freely spent his life for our sakes. He was stripped naked so that our shame could be covered. He went into exile so that we could finally return home. He was rejected and despised by men so that we could be welcomed by God. And as the new Adam, he descended into the sleep of death so that like Eve, we could be born again from his wounded side. And he rose from the dead, showing that all the protection that we can imagine, it is available, it is possible to have an eternal security that not even death can take away. An eternal life with the treasure of our hearts, the bridegroom who will never fail. This can be yours. If you will turn from your sin and trust in the work of Christ. And if you do, then you will be in that wedding that sits at the center of all of human history. You, the likes of you, will be received by Him. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done and your faith in that. I would plead with you you're not a follower of Jesus, come to him. Know this love. Know this union. And if you have repented and believed, when you think of your role or God's design in marriage, and you think of Ephesians chapter 5, don't begin in verse 22. No, when we think of marriages, begin in verse 18. Not drunk with wine, but instead filled with the Spirit. The only way you and I will ever live out this glorious reality is by continually being filled with more of His Spirit.